Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Eric Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, you'll get your weekly dose of civil rights and criminal injustice system news as we discuss the Utah police officer, Nicholas Pierce, who is now facing felony assault charges for releasing his canine on an innocent man who was already in a submissive position. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reinstating a civil rights lawsuit against the Cuyahoga County Cleveland, Ohio Child Protective Services and the results of an independent investigation into the Columbus Police Department's behavior during the May and June protests over police killings. That report went public this week. In segment two, as promised, we'll be exploring de-escalation tactics and training and its use both on and off the streets. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. Follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and at TLOBJ on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Look to TLOBJ.com for information about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. And if you have questions that you want addressed on the Sui Generous Show, leave your comments below on or on your favorite social media platform. We'll make sure to give you a shout out and answer your questions in a future episode. Erica, did you see in the news this week that another white officer was charged with a crime, the crime of felonious assault in Utah, after body cam footage proves that he encouraged his canine to attack a black man who was on his knees with his hands up? Yes, Brian, that was really scary news because in light of everything that's been happening lately, you would think that by now law enforcement officers would know that when somebody is subdued, you should not continue to attack them. And just because it's not with a gun or their fists, it looks like he was really just looking for a loophole by using his dog. It seems that way. The police officer, Nicholas Pierce, had his body cam on and it captured him ordering his police dog to bite Jeffrey Ryans. Now, Mr. Ryans was peacefully kneeling and awaiting arrest and graphically memorialized his assault uh, by screaming out, I'm on the ground, why are you biting me? Now, Mr. Ryans is going to need surgery for multiple lacerations and complications resulting from the dog bites. Um, and he will be permanently disfigured as the result of this unprovoked attack. The Utah Police Department originally swept this incident under the rug, as police officers are want to do, uh, but the misconduct came to light when Mr. Ryans filed a civil rights lawsuit against the police department, and his attorney released the body cam footage to the press. The officer is charged with a second-degree felony under Utah law called aggravated assault. It carries a maximum of 15 years in prison. It seems akin to Ohio's felonious assault, which carries a two- to eight-year prison term. Now, once the lawsuit was filed, the misconduct in the police department and their cover-up was also brought to light. The district attorney began an investigation, and those felony charges resulted as a result of that investigation. Uh, it's taken five months to get to where we are today. Now, the officer also faces administrative discipline by the police department, as if that's going to go anywhere. And the canine unit has unfortunately been temporarily suspended 
um, in order to investigate the procedures and training and use of the dogs by the officers. It seems that they are charging him uh, similar to the Ohio law, which uh, makes a aggravated felony, a second degree felony for the use of a deadly weapon. And of course, these dogs can cause death or serious physical harm. So it seems like that is a, a similar statute that Utah has to the Ohio law. Well, I mean, I, it, it's just such a surprising case. So what in your opinion, from your perspective as a criminal defense attorney, makes this case unique? First, it's the misuse of one of law enforcement's most dangerous tools, the canine unit. These animals are trained to hurt, maim, and kill. Uh, the canines are supposed to be used for uh, individuals who are in flight and to protect the immediate officer's life. Um, they are prone to be used on black and other uh, minority individuals. And it harkens back to the nightmare that was Selma, Alabama and the use of canines by Southern law enforcement officers against civil rights activists. It's a triggering and traumatic event um, image for a large portion of our population. Second big problem here is the officer's retaliatory and unprovoked use of the bite command. It raises deep questions about the training of canines, the, their handlers, and the use of force training in this individual department. And not to mention, it reminds the public that we are all at the mercy of the temperament of the individual responding officer. If he's having a bad day and decides to take that out on us, um, on us the people that he's responding to, we really have no way of stopping that. And we have to suffer the permanent disfigurement um, that, that he needs to get through his day, like most of us have a cup of coffee. The officer also, and, and I think in many people's opinion, quite possibly the most serious consequence here, is that the canine's life was put in danger. For all of our dog lovers out there, uh, nobody wants to see uh, an animal put in danger unnecessarily. These are working dogs and they're trained to do a job, but why would we risk that animal's life for vengeance and nothing more? Racist vengeance. Now, as the review um, is clearly showing, the canine was not at fault. Rather, the handler unleashed him and encouraged the attack. It's shameful given that these highly trained animals are both expensive and paid for by the taxpayers. You know, that is such an interesting point that you bring up because personally, like I'm talking about a personal dog. I have a personal, I have my own dog. I've trained him, but I also have a seven-year-old. And there are certain things that I train her not to do when she's handling the dog. Like don't put your face in his face when, you know, don't act like a dog. She, <laughs> that's not a problem for most adults, but she likes to uh, act like a dog. And, you know, that would promote him to, to, you know, possibly nip her and play with her like she was another dog, because that's what dogs do. And I tell her, and it sounds harsh, but I always say, he bites you, he gets killed. And it's your fault, because I've told you 50 times not to do this. So now that I'm saying this on the air, <laughs> <laughs> that happens. But I'm just, it, it, it's absolutely true about it not being the dog's fault, yet the dog will pay the ultimate price. And certainly the person that the dog is being used on does not deserve 
that kind of treatment if they are just waiting to be arrested and they're in a, a, a subdued position, as you, as you mentioned. Um, it just seems like the cops let their anger get to them and they, they use any means possible to aggravate the situation further. And it's just shameful. Uh, you're absolutely right, Erica, and it really highlights the psychopathy that runs rampant through many of these police departments and these individuals that that seek out law enforcement jobs. The lack of empathy for other human beings, those who are different from them, those who are others, who are not police officers, and animals. You know, we hear time and time again through all the psychological studies that the abuse of animals, you know, that, that kid that uses the magnifying glass to light ants on fire, and the, the kid that tortures the neighborhood stray is the kid that will inevitably grow up to be a murderer. And so we see here the officer's willingness to, without cause, put the dog's life in danger is part and parcel to his willingness to harm another human being for doing nothing other than existing as a black individual in, in America. Here in Ohio, Erica, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court of appeals that covers uh, areas ranging from Michigan all the way down to Tennessee, reinstated a civil rights lawsuit against Cuyahoga County, which is the county that Cleveland is in, and their Job and Family Services, Child Protective Services Division, for the death of a child as the result of negligent children's services investigations. This case is especially heartbreaking, especially for us parents, right, Brian? I mean, you cannot even imagine a child being put through what this child was put through and then inevitably killed as a result of uh, people not being careful with how they handle a situation uh, with, the, with the child and with the abuse that was happening in the home. What happened in this case and how did they arrive at that decision? So in this case, uh, the five-year-old was interviewed by Children Protective Services in the presence of her suspected abuser. Now, this is turning on its head what we often see in, in these sorts of cases. So oftentimes in these child abuse cases, Children's Services will erroneously interview a child witness in the presence of their encourager. So if you've got somebody that's um, trying to manipulate a child into making false allegations, like a mother against the soon-to-be-divorced father, the Children's Services will erroneously interview the child in the presence of that mother who's sitting there saying, you better make the allegation. Well, in this case, Children's Services interviewed the child in the presence of the suspected abusers. They didn't follow protocol and conduct a forensic interview by an objective interviewer in a neutral location. And this is a clear violation of the forensic protocols, and in particular, the process of investigating child abuse. Now, it's also in this case, which is particularly important to the decision, a violation of county policy. Now, sadly, the evidence shows that the child was punished severely by those abusers after each interview. Now, the county denied that its acts 
placed the child in greater danger and argued that the choice to interview the child in the presence of her attackers did not amount to a constitutional violation, despite the fact that it ultimately cost the child her life. The district court, the trial level, the lower level court in this case, dismissed the suit because the child was killed outside of state custody. But the Court of Appeals overturned that decision um, and reinstated the suit, finding that when the government acts in a way that increases danger to a victim, it can be held accountable for the damages. So that language is really important because when the government acts in a way that increases danger to a victim, it can be held accountable, really broadens the scope of what government actors are responsible for when we're talking about qualified immunity. Right, and especially when the, when the victim is just a five-year-old, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking and you would think that they would take every possible care to make sure that this child was taken care of. Um, it's just heartbreaking. So what happened to the people who murdered the child? Did they get punished? They did. They absolutely were punished here. The perpetrators, uh, the mother was convicted of reckless homicide, child endangering, um, and she was sentenced to 10 years. The partner who actually did the killing was convicted of murder and child endangering and is serving a 25 to life sentence. So the suit isn't about punishing the people who uh, murdered the child. It's about forcing a change in the agency. And that's what civil rights lawsuits are really all about. You know, you see in the news, you know, we had just this week in the news, Breonna Taylor's lawsuit uh, against the city of Louisville settled for $12 million. And that's the big splashy thing that the media covers. But in this case, it's about forcing change in the agency and holding the state accountable for its reckless and indifferent behavior to the child that ultimately died. In the Breonna Taylor case, it's about changing protocol. It's about how they now require a supervisor to sign off on all the warrants. It's about how now they have a medic ready, willing, and able as part of the breach team that goes in and executes these warrants. So in case somebody is shot, there is somebody that can provide medical attention immediately, whereas Brianna Taylor suffered and bled out for almost half an hour. I mean, it's a, it's a really horrible situation, and I'm glad that in the future, they're going to be taking steps to avoid uh, you know, someone bleeding out, making sure that they have that medical uh, personnel there. I mean, we talked about this, you know, similar situations where, you know, having someone there to deescalate the situation with, and I know we're going to be talking about that later, but, you know, honestly, you're going into a situation, why wouldn't you use all of the tools necessary to make sure that things don't get out of hand and, as much as possible, you know, people don't get hurt. Absolutely right, Erica. And this is, this kind of strikes at the heart of the call to defund the police. So tanks are expensive. Rocket propelled grenades are expensive. Fully automatic weapons, um, hand grenades, gas canisters, body armor. These things are all very expensive. But if we take those things away, if we take armored personnel carriers away from police and use that money on a medic to be assigned to breach teams, if we take away some fully automatic weapons 
and use that money for social workers to go into domestic situations and de-escalate those situations rather than arresting and incarcerating individuals. We can now move towards a society that trusts the government, recognizes that at times we need the assistance of outsiders and we can really be the community that policing was originally founded to be. You know, the greatest police officer in my mind is Andy Griffith. And that man could walk into any situation and de-escalate it and make sure that Barney Fife didn't have to pull his sidearm out of his holster and start blowing people away. And we need to get more Andy Griffiths and fewer Barney Fifes in the police community. I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, it would be nice to have a lot less news, <laughs> a lot less bad news anyway. <laughs> um, so I guess let's move on to the next news story. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the CPS and, you know, what that means to the criminal defense community? Well, before we move on, I, I appreciate that, Erica. Yes, I would like to say this is, these investigations are often the precursors of criminal charges. And as a society, we have to demand that these agents of the state be held to a standard of quality training, consistently following the training, equitable treatment of the people that they investigate, and fundamental fairness in their investigations. What we have found time and time again is that these individuals have significantly more bias even than police officers they make a immediate assumption that the people they are investigating are, are abusive, are neglectful, are just generally speaking bad people. And you can see colored throughout their, their reports and throughout their entire investigation, this presumption of that us versus them mentality. And that mentality has got to be removed from government. Government and government officials cannot look at the people as the enemy. We have seen cases where CPS agents lie, never investigate the things that they claim to investigate, and they deceive people rather than fulfilling their central obligation of pr protecting children. And those children can't protect themselves. I think this is an important step in the accountability and due process venues. And we're really proud to see the Sixth Circuit standing up for the people and holding these government agencies accountable, especially as it broadens the scope of these sorts of uh, these accountability principles outside of police and inclusive of these children protective service workers who are what I would consider quasi-police officers. Now, Erica, the other big news this week here in Ohio was that the city of Columbus re released the results of an investigation into the use of force during the George Floyd protests in May and June of this year. Well, I'm really excited that you are going to update us on the situation. I know you promised several months ago that you would, and here you are, true to your word. What was the outcome of the investigation? Nobody was happy. 
with the results of this investigation. The law firm Baker Hostetler was contracted and a team of 10 lawyers reviewed hundreds of hours of video and interviewed many people involved. Over 90 officers were interviewed on the events of May and June of this year. Uh, now, Police Chief Edwards said after the investigation into the citizen complaints, four officers have been exonerated, one of the complaints was sustained, nine were found unfounded, two were withdrawn and therefore found unfounded, and 25 were unsustained. Now, the cases that contained the most serious allegations were not investigated by Baker Hostetler, but were submitted for criminal investigation. That was 21 incidents that were forwarded for criminal investigation. What I think is really interesting about this report is that the attorneys at Baker Hostetler noted significantly that the investigation was hindered most often because the officers in the videos obscured their identification and hid their identities. So while they could identify police misconduct, they could not tie that misconduct back to individual officers because the officers' affirmative steps of obscuring their identities and hiding their identification. I would argue this is a moment, having received this report, that the police chief needs to come forward and put name, bad, name badges on officers on multiple locations. They need to be across the forehead. They need to be large and across the chest so that an officer can't cover it up. So an officer can't put a piece of black tape across it. And they need to be across the officer's back. Now that can either be a last name or a badge number, but there needs to be identifying information that cannot be obscured because officers should not be allowed to obscure and hide their identities and then go out and engage in vigilante misconduct and violation of citizens constitutional rights. Wow, that those are all really great suggestions. And I mean, you, you used to hear about them shutting off the camera, but I think now that they're getting in trouble with that, they're coming up with new ways to try to hide. And if they can't hide what they're doing, they're trying to hide who they are <laughs> so that they can't get punished later. So that's kind of sneaky. Um, what did the public think about this report? Well, the, the public response to this was, was mixed. Mayor Ginther was disappointed and surprised. The public safety director found that the report supports the need for a citizen review board. Now, the chief of police, of course, stands with his officers, and, but he also said that he understands that there needs to be a review of police policy. He acknowledges that he will be equipping more officers with body cameras and acknowledge that more clear identifiers need to be considered. Now, I don't think that that's far enough, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Erica, you'll be shocked to find out that the Fraternal Order of Police, being their myopic and petulant selves, complained that there was even an investigation and attacked Mayor Ginther for allowing an outside body to conduct this investigation at all yet more evidence that we see week in and week out that the Fraternal Order of Police does not serve its membership well. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you're right. I'm not surprised, uh, but it's, 
I think that it, you know, the, I think things are written on the wall for them finally. I think that the, the, the public is starting to take action. They've been taking action all year and with protests. And as a result, you've got your legislature taking action, your community. Um, I think things are going to start turning around. And of course, they're not going to like it. So what are your takeaways from the report? I want to applaud the Columbus Police Department. Investigations into wrongdoing matter. And having those investigations done by an outside agency puts up a bulwark against bias and conflict. And they voluntarily expose the efforts of the Columbus Police to hide themselves by hiding their identities and turning off their body cameras. It reminds police officers, the public are not helpless to their overreach. The public has tools available to use, sunshine laws, referendums, and our vote to ensure that they are accountable for the harm that they cause people that they are sworn to protect. Nobody is left unhurt by protests that are met with violence by police officers. Indeed, Chief Quinlan claimed that 200 officers were harmed during the protests. Now, he's refused to provide any verification of that, and some are still on leave due to their alleged injuries. But if you take him at his word, the police officers that were hurt by the violence and hundreds of citizens were also hurt. So if officers want to protect themselves and want to protect the people, then they should leave their body cams on. They should leave their identification visible so that investigators can identify collateral witnesses to support statements that protesters are getting out of hand. And if they claim that the bad actions are done by a few bad apples, we can root those apples out and toss them before the worm goes to another apple next to it, if that's really what's happening. I think what's more accurate, or more likely rather, what's more likely is that there aren't just a few bad apples, that law enforcement broadly encourages the obfuscation of identification, broadly encourages the turning on and turning off of body-worn cameras so that it's convenient and, and to create a narrative that matches the police narrative. And that generally speaking, officers weren't hurt during these protests. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts and for following up with us on this very important investigation. You're welcome. And let's turn now to ways that we can keep both sides of this equation safe through de-escalation tactics and training. So here we are at segment two, and as promised, we're gonna to talk today about de-escalation training. It is a foundational tenant of education and medical training. Whether we're looking at elementary school teachers or nurses, the tools needed to minimize harm and protect the safety of people in a crisis, as well as the responders to those crises, are taught and retaught to the point of becoming second nature. 
34 out of 50 states here in the US do not require de-escalating training for law enforcement officers. And the consequences are spattered across the sidewalks of America and on our news feeds every day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's scary and it's absolutely something that we need to take very seriously. And I mean, I know even in episodes in the past, you've, you've talked about de-escalation training that hasn't worked. Uh, for example, I believe it was in Vermont. We were talking about that last week or the week before. Now, first of all, I guess, I guess you're going to review some of this, but um, if you could tell me again, what exactly is the goal of de-escalation training? So at its core, de-escalation refers to the behavior that is intended to prevent the escalation of conflict. In law enforcement context, it's designed to reduce the risk of violent confrontations during any sort of interaction between the police and the people. Now, it's supposed to de-escalate the likelihood of violence from both sides. So both the people towards the police and the people, police towards the people. In prisons, it's designed to preserve life of those people who are detained. There are a variety of models and studies about these techniques. And, and we did discuss recently how some techniques haven't worked very well in some, in some police departments. There are entire areas of academic scholarship dedicated to developing training for educators, social workers, psychologists, and police officers. Now, interestingly, judges and lawyers in the courtroom can also receive de-escalation training. Uh, because I can tell you from personal experience that in the courtroom, in the middle of trial, emotions can run high and stress can sometimes trigger mental health issues. I've seen it in opposing counsel. They get crazy sometimes. Uh, now these techniques are absolutely appropriate for mental health situations. Now we talked earlier about the, uh, the spousal situation, you know, the argument that just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. And we have the opportunity to send a social worker out to de-escalate that. Whereas a police officer is gonna go and arrest people, if they have the appropriate training, they can settle people down and make conflicts like domestic violence or even serious, more serious situations like hostage situations. And for the use of suicide prevention. It's a very broad topic, Erica, and if we properly train police officers in de-escalation, or maybe more importantly, bringing the right individuals in to de-escalate a situation, rather than viewing people as the enemy combatant, we view them as equals. And the goal is going to be to keep everybody alive, minimize conflict, and minimize violence. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And you have to have the utmost respect for somebody who is just being screamed at and they can keep a cool head. And I absolutely believe that this type of training can help in any situation, maybe even with your relationships at home and away from the court and away from these situations, you know, this, this can help with everything. I think it can help kids even. Um, but we are not talking about that today. We are talking about 
how we can use this training to deescalate these highly escalated situations that are already happening when the police show up on the scene. And so can you give us some examples of some of the techniques that we're talking about here? So there's a variety of techniques. When we, we can talk about verbal de-escalation tactics. So the non-physical skills used to prevent a potentially dangerous situation from escalating into a physical confrontation. So use of tone of voice, use of terminology, um, you know, the use of particular words can make a person increase their stress or decrease their stress. Now, generally speaking, the tactics fall into three primary categories. Tactics used to prevent a dangerous situation from escalating, tactics to you to de-escalate a situation that has already escalated, and tactics used during an active confrontation to ensure personal safety. People that are using these sorts of tactics and learning these sorts of tactics have to be very cognizant of barriers to effective communication. They cannot go into a situation with prejudice and prejudged ideas. They must listen to the other parties to the situation. Don't engage in argument, don't criticize, don't name call, don't engage in a power struggle, which is very difficult for police officers. Police officers are, have pounded into their heads. You must be the most powerful person in the scene. You must be in control at all times. Things like ordering people around, threatening or minimizing the consequences of a particular situation are also significant barriers to effective communication and escalate situations. Body language and tone are very important to de-escalation. The key tools are forward listening skills, attending, giving your physical and mental attention to the person that's talking, following the use of eye contact and body mirroring, and reflecting, paraphrasing, and empathizing to the person that you're speaking with. Use of space, giving individuals a safe distance so that they feel that they're not being attacked. Using open body language and tone. Asking questions that ground, how does that feel? Are you hungry? Are you cold? Are you worried? Are you stressed? Grounding the other individual in their moment rather than escalating and causing worry and stress. So, I mean, we talked about before how everyone could really benefit from this kind of training. How could an attorney benefit from this kind of training or these techniques? So, when we deal with difficult police officers, opposing attorneys, even clients sometimes, we need to be able to maintain our composure and accomplish the required result. We can also use these techniques to help a client break through emotional barriers and help in telling their truth on the witness stand. And lastly, it assists in moments of crisis and we can assist clients and refer them to the correct support uh, services and resources. I mean, and all that sounds fantastic. And it looks like if we could do more of that, we would be moving in the right direction for de-escalating all of the situations that are happening in our country right now. Brian, how can we get more de-escalation training for these law enforcement officers? 
So first and foremost, vote for candidates who support de-escalation training. Second, write your current state and federal representatives in support of de-escalation training. Invite de-escalating trainers to your business, school, organization, or otherwise, um, you know, any organization that you're a part of and, and popularize these tools and techniques. So bring the knowledge to other people. And last, support your local mental health advocates and funding in your community. Make sure that they are in support of de-escalation training and techniques and encourage them to partner with their local law enforcement to give away some de-escalation training and techniques to make everybody safer in the community. Erica, I want to thank you for joining me, and I want to thank everybody that watches and listens to our show every week. To make sure that you become informed about how the government is exploiting the citizenry, refusing to engage in de-escalation tactics, um, to learn more about upcoming and major decisions in criminal and civil rights law, to learn more about police and government accountability and everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system, check out tlobj.com or follow our social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense or go to Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at tlobj. We'll be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice news, as well as a discussion of access to medical and mental health care while in state custody. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And when I'm talking to my friends, when we're separating, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.